Thank you, Megan, and welcome everyone this morning. Those of you who are worshiping here in the sanctuary, it's great to see your eyes. And uh, for the rest of you who are worshiping online, it's uh, an honor that you've tuned in uh, to join us. We have some moments together today in this ongoing series about one another's in the Bible. And this morning in particular, we're looking at one of the trickier ones, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. So uh, this particular scripture has been, I think, misused in some ways that are pretty destructive. I want to kind of unpack this as we have some time together. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather here within these walls and online to listen for your voice. And we invite your Holy Spirit to teach us now and uh, pray that we would be responsive so that uh, we might be people who are on this ongoing journey to look more like you for one another, for our families, our neighbors, our city, our world. Would you take us there, Father? Give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying and hearts to respond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If there's one thing we learn from the book of Job, it's that there are no formulas for health and wealth. I am reading Job right now in my devotions, and uh, it's an annoying book, actually. I don't know if you've read Job. Uh, It's rarely preached on in America, because we in America love formulas. In other words, we love this sentence. If you do this, then this will happen. We love that, right? It applies to parenting. There's like magazine titles, five words to say so your children never disobey. Who wouldn't read that article, right? And then I, on my little feed on the internet, I saw this, Warren Buffett's single trick for building wealth. I'm in. Of course, we all know the one weird trick for losing belly fat. I don't know what it is, but we all know it. Uh, Five words to use at work so that you can climb the corporate ladder. And implied in all of these, right, is this really reduced, kind of simplified, methodological means of quote-unquote, getting ahead in the world. And reality is never that way, ever. It's always more nuanced. It's always more complex. And so this matters when we come to the text about praying for one another in order that we might be healed, because superficial readings of that would lead to the exact conclusion that Job's friends offered Job in the wake of his illness. Job lost everything. He lost his health. He lost his money. And his friends came and quote-unquote in solidarity sat with him for seven days, and as soon as they opened their mouths, they were like this, you have sinned, and we got to find it, and you got to name it, because as soon as you name it, boom, God's going to restore everything. But until then, what is wrong with you, right? And boy, I've heard that from people before. A long, long time ago, not here at Bethany, but a long time ago in a pastoral situation, um, A couple claimed, we've gone, you know, we've gone through our lives with a fine-tooth comb, we've confessed everything, and we've claimed healing for our son, who had some cancer going on. And so they wouldn't take him to a doctor. You say, we're claiming healing. <laughs> and then th- this cancer continued to metastasize, and they ended up having to uh, take an eye out of his head so that the cancer wouldn't go into his brain, and he lost his, he lost his sight. And they were filled, in the wake of that, with shame. We didn't pray enough. We didn't believe enough. This is heresy, you guys. 
And it's super destructive within the evangelical community. And it's rooted in this kind of desire that we have for a formula that will create in us kind of bomb-proof success in the lives that we're living. Uh, no. So instead, uh, James answers three questions that will bring clarity to this matter of confession and healing and how they're related. In the process, he shows us how deeply God desires that our lives be woven together. So let me give you the context of the book of James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he was a leader of the early church in Jerusalem, and uh, his leadership uh, predominantly, as he wrote this letter, was addressing Jewish Christ followers. And these Jewish Christ followers in Jerusalem had suffered a great deal during the early years of the church. First of all, they were persecuted by those who didn't uh, turn to follow Christ and were continuing away from Messiah. So there was there was this kind of great divide between now this new movement and uh, the traditionalists. And these guys were persecuted over here. Then there was a famine. And the combination of the famine and the persecution meant that a lot of these Christians were in poverty and, and, and poverty and sickness are causal, and there were more people sick. And so James is writing the book, kind of answering the question, how do you deal with suffering? And it's, he doesn't say name it and claim it. There's <laughs> a different answer. So dealing with suffering and interpreting suffering becomes a major theme in the book. And he opens the book by saying, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and then watch this, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, a key to understand the entire book is to understand the word perfect here. The word perfect is the word teleos, and it means whole, and it means kind of the, in a sense, the end of the story, and it's actually our theme for discipleship here at Bethany. First Thessalonians 5.23 is where God expresses through Paul a desire that we move toward wholeness in spirit, which means we have a secure identity in Christ, in, this, in our soul, which means that um, you know, we're continuing to do the work as God peels back layers of dysfunction in our lives, like you know, ego, pride, shame, destructive coping mechanisms. We're continuing to grow. And when we're rooted in Christ and continuing to grow, the truth is that has a measurable effect on how we present our lives in our body as well. So our body is related to our soul and spirit. It's not, you know, we're not a car, like this mechanistic thing. And so you go to the doctor and you've got an illness. Oh, well, we'll just, yank, you know, yank this part out, put a new part. It's not always quite that easy because our body is also reflecting what's going on in our spirit and our soul. So we want to dismiss the notion here that wholeness means a perfect body. It doesn't. Cells mutate. Things happen. Uh, we all die. So, so it doesn't mean a perfect body. What it means here <clears throat> is that wholeness of spirit and soul actually move our body toward wholeness, even though our body isn't perfect. I'll give you a couple of examples. Like if you're holding bitterness, if I'm if every time I see you, I'm mad at you, but I don't say anything. That's bitterness, right? You know what happens? Uh, like it's, it doesn't just affect my brain. There's a there's a there's a fight or flight cortisol thing that goes on, and I have a stress response, and that stress response, my blood pressure goes up, and my blood pressure goes up, and then I don't sleep as well, and my heart rate is elevated, and and it's all intended 
for a fight, but I don't fight. Because, I, you know, we're all civil, so we don't bust out swords or duel to the death anymore. We just kind of stew. And in our stew, it's affecting my body. It is, it's affecting my body. If you're isolated, isolation leads to anxiety, leads to depression, leads to sleep disorders. So look, uh, you're, you're a whole person, and to the extent that you're addressing your, your soul and doing the work of ongoing transformation by confession and by being in community, it's going to affect your body for the better. It's not perfect healing, but it's healing. So, so that's what I'm going to see here. And to do that, I'm going to kind of unpack these three questions. Why confess? Why confess to one another? And how's that related to healing? Here's the first thing, why confess? Well, the word confess in the Greek language is homo legeo. It means to say the same thing. So when I'm confessing something, I'm agreeing with uh, reality. Uh, when I'm confessing to God, I'm agreeing with God. If I'm confessing to you, I'm saying to you, this is, here's reality. I'm naming reality. And, and, and I have found, this is so important confession, because in my experience, the hardest people to work with in the world are people who never own their own stuff. Like, if I've never heard you say I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do. It's, Incredibly frustrating. Such people who never own their own stuff, are, they're stuck, they stop growing, and their lack of growth becomes in their soul kind of like a pond that loses the inflow and the outflow and begins to stagnate. And the stagnation presents in, you know, judgmentalism and petty accusations and pride and blindness. And it, like if it's unchecked, it's a terrible downward spiral. Best example in the Bible, there are, and there are several, but the best example is Saul. Now, he was very humble, chosen as king by God. And then, you know what happens sometimes is uh, you begin to enjoy the perks of leadership to the point where you become more cons- Imagine this. You become more concerned about preserving your power than serving the people. Has that ever happened in politics? Ever? On the part of any party. I mean, that happens all the time. And it's not just politics. It happens at work. It happens in churches. It happens, right? So Paul's chosen. And then uh, he, he really, oh, you know, it's not so bad being the top dog. He enjoys it. And then uh, this incident happens in 1 Samuel 13, where there's a battle that's going to take place. And in Israel, if you're a, if you're a king, you're a king, not a priest. So you never offer the sacrifice, only the priest offers the sacrifice. Well, Saul is uh, waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. He doesn't come. And so uh, Saul panics, and to use business terms, he leaves his swim lane and starts to do somebody else's job, right? He offers the sacrifice. Then Samuel comes and says, why'd you offer the sacrifice? And by the way, the right answer at that point is, I blew it. I'm sorry. And instead, what does he do? You didn't show up on time. So I had to offer the sacrifice. And so he, he blames rather than owning. And then in his blaming, uh, uh, Samuel says, look, your kingdom's not going to endure. And, and so a pattern is set in his life at that moment where Saul begins to hold on to power. And then, subsequent to that event, 
Uh, there's another battle, and he gives a foolish order forbidding all the soldiers from eating until the battle's over. And his son, Jonathan, eats some honey anyway. And then Saul tries to save face by insisting that he needs to kill his son, but his insistence only undermines his credibility further on the part of the people, and the people intervene to save his son. And through all this, Saul refuses to confess his presumption. And then in a third instance, he's uh, told when he conquers the Amalekites to go in and kill the animals, and he doesn't. He saves some animals. And then when he's confronted, uh, he justifies rather than confesses, and then he's supposed to relinquish the throne to David. He refuses to relinquish the throne, tries twice to kill his successor, ultimately goes insane and dies in a civil war that he himself created, all because he would not confess. Listen, own period, your period, stuff, period. I can't make it any more clear than that. Because if you don't, not only is everyone around you poisoned, not only is your organization going to be destroyed, but you yourself are on a downward tra- trajectory toward, you know, profound unhealth. That's why confession is tied to healing. So you got to own your, it's simple. Own your stuff. So first of all, like apply this to your own heart, right? Above all else. Let it bleed into your marriage, into your work, into your relationship with your children. Kind of own your stuff. And then if you own your stuff in in an atmosphere of trust, in other words, if I confess to you, and then, and then you're like, oh, okay. Well, since you had the courage to confess, here's my, I'll own my stuff too. In that atmosphere of grace, <clears throat> there's an upward trajectory. So I've been married 42 years. It may come as a surprise to you, but there have been a couple of conflicts, you know, along the way, right? And one, you know, one epic conflict, it's funny, my wife and I, Donna and I, we never remember what was the cause of the conflict ever. All we remember are the hurtful things that we said to each other, right? And, and so um, normally in my world, you know, I'm living down here in the city on Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, because there's meetings here and they go home on Tuesday. This was pre-COVID, but it's the way it was. So, I, you know, I'm down here on a Monday night, and Donna's rarely here on a Monday night, and she was here on a Monday night. And Monday nights, I'm hopeless. I've worked all day Sunday. I've worked all day Monday. And Monday night, I just want to watch Monday night football, or if it's not football season, some stupid reruns, or, you know, I just want, I want to be completely mindless. And she came into the Monday night with her own emotional needs. And so I said something terrible to her. And then she said some really mean things to me. And then, you know, Boom, boom, you know, escalated. And then I I walked out of the bungalow. I'm leaving. Like, where am I going anyway, right? Where am I going? I'm like, so, you know, I thought I was going to walk around the lake, but I couldn't endure that much time without resolution. So I walked around this this sanctuary, you know, and then and then I went back in. And I will say to you, Donna was the courageous one in that in this story, the first one. She said, I just, I, I need to be more sensitive that Monday nights are not the time to bring these things up, you know. Which then gave me the courage to say, I'm sorry I said you're clueless, because that's a really mean thing to say. You know, and then there's, you know, hugs, and pretty soon we have a nice steak dinner, and it's all good, right? But 
it, someone had to move. Are you with me? Somebody has to move. And if you're like this, I'm not moving until you move, then nobody moves. That's profoundly immature. So we need to apply this to our own heart. Take Saul as an example. If I don't move, then there's a downward trajectory here to my whole life and my relationships that is toxic to my spirit, my soul, and my body. So apply it to your own heart, but also apply it to the choices you make of who to trust. When truth-telling is met with denial, blame, gaslighting, I'm telling you, don't trust that person with your soul. Don't trust that person with leadership or authority or influence because lack of confession is a cancer. It's a cancer to souls, to marriages, to churches, to nations. Don't, don't do it. And then, you know, as we apply this in our own lives, in Romans 12, it's very clear, it's very practical. Paul, Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And so, you know, on the one hand, when someone praises you, can I do away this false humility? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's nothing. It's nothing. No, it's just, you know, Christ in me or whatever you say as a spiritual person. Yeah. No, no, look at it. When I say to Graham, you're a great musician and all my friends love when you lead worship, which is a true statement. I mean, the answer is thank you. Not, ah, well, you know, you didn't hear the two notes that I blew. I hate that, right? Some people are kind of fishing for compliments to bolster their own insecurity by preemptively being self-critical. Oh, did you hear that? Worship is terrible. And then they're waiting. Oh, no, no, it's really, it's good. That's ridiculous, right? Just, just don't think you're so moral. And if you blow it, then what? Own it. Own it. So accept the praise, but own your mistakes. So, so you know, pretty practical. Now, second question, why confess to one another? There's two reasons. I'll give you both reasons and then unpack each one. Number one, because there's times when I, if I've offended someone, I need to come clean with that particular person. And number two, uh, we need people in our lives to walk with us on our journey of transformation. So let's look at both of these things. Confess to one another. Number one, if I've offended somebody, I got to come clean. Now, the beautiful story that illustrates this in the scripture is the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, right? Uh, the son, you know, takes his inheritance from his dad who generously gives it to him early. He goes out and he squanders it. And then at his lowest point, when he's spent all his money and now he's kind of living as a, as a hired hand somewhere and eating from the pigsty, he decides to return home and confess to his dad and seek to be a slave working for his dad. And, and so, you know, as, he, as he's coming home, he's got this speech planned. And what he's going to say to his dad, I have sinned against, and he says heaven, which is true, but he says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. In other words, look, I blew it. And I, look, I let you down. I broke a promise. I lied. You know, I was unfaithful. I squandered the money, whatever it is in your setting, right? I said hurtful things. Own it. And conf like, if you offended somebody, confess, preempt, go in and confess. That's what the... That's the whole point of that story at a level. There are other points. But if you miss that point, you've missed the main point. Like, own your stuff, go in. So when you've wronged someone, in Matthew 5.23, uh, 
uh, we're told, like if you're worshiping like this and there's a broken relationship, we're told that fixing the relationship is more important than worship. The clear implication here is that we're to make truth-telling, confession, reconciliation, high priorities in our lives, one of the highest priorities you can have because you cannot have a healthy relationship between two people without truth-telling and confession. It's impossible. You can have a relationship, but it's not healthy. It will become toxic. So kind of developing in your heart and soul like this, this habit of owning your stuff and naming it with those uh, that are in your life, it's just super important. Like, that, we, we, we just have to do that. I remember I was uh, on, my, on my scooter one time, right? Uh, and I was making a right turn here at Aurora and 80th. And a guy from behind hit me. You know, and it hurt. <laughs> it didn't kill me, obviously, and it, I didn't go to the hospital or anything, but it hurt. And um, now this is not legal advice, so caveat to all the lawyers in the room, please know. Not legal advice, but, uh, you know, he immediately stopped, got out of his car, came to me. He said, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? He said, you know, I... I'll be honest with you, I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention as I should have. And then, you know, we shook hands and patched things up, and I, I took his dad in case I needed it. But it was such a, I want to say, glorious moment because there was no kind of, I didn't see your signal, or you stopped too fast. There was none of that. It was like, I blew it. Wow. I wanted to kiss him. You know, I'm, I'm over, I'm exaggerating, right? But you understand what I'm saying? Like, there's something so refreshing in this culture about honesty. Why? Because we don't see it. We, and, and frankly, as a result, we don't trust institutions anymore, including the church. If I, man, if I had a nickel for every time a pastor uh, was trying to confess the thing that he'd been caught in, and instead of confessing, it was he gives this mitigating admission. Oh, yeah, yeah, I had a affair. You have no idea the stress I'm under. I nearly had a nervous breakdown because of you guys. You're terrible people. You, you know, you, I'm exhausted all the time. Subtext, I had to have an affair because of you. That's ridiculous, right? I mean, when God says to Adam, did you eat the fruit? There's only, it's, it's multiple choice, but there's only two answers. Yes or no? And instead, what? The woman you gave me, you know, mitigating. No. Like, you're going to be free and live a healthy life. When you blow it, own it. So that's the why of, of you know, there's times we've offended people, so we, we need to own our stuff in that moment. Second, we need people in our lives to walk with us in our own journey of transformation. And so the best example of this that I can come up with in the scripture is David, the successor to Saul. In 2 Samuel 12, you know, David becomes king. He's called a man after God's own heart. And um, in 2 Samuel 12, he's also ascended to power. He's also enjoying the perks of power. And he, so he's delegated. Everyone's out fighting wars, and he's at home alone. And he sees this, you know, this pretty lady on the roof and uh, decides to use his power and authority to 
obtain her, sleeps with her, impregnates her, tries to cover it up, and when he fails to cover it up, he kills the husband. And then when he's confronted, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, what does David say? Oh, you have no idea how stressful my job is. No, 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 it's none of that. This is what he says. I have sinned. Boom. And then read Psalm 51, where David says to God in his confession, God, you're, if you killed me now, you're just. I'm telling you, all of us should feel that way at times. And if we don't, we might be blind to our own sin, you know? So, so we want to learn how to own our stuff here. But in this case, David confesses to Nathan, and then Nathan will walk with David on a path of restoration. There's consequences. It'll be painful. Uh, there's loss. But like the confession creates a solidarity. They're going to walk together. You, does this make sense? And we need in our lives exactly this. Both in Ephesians 5 and 2 Corinthians 4, we're told to bring things into the light. And bringing things into the light is a way of, of uh, being exhorted by God to, to say to people in our lives who are close to us, listen, uh, behind the veil of you know strength and self-sufficiency that everybody sees on Sunday, I want you to know I've got self-doubt or I've got shame or I've got a problem with lust or I've got a drinking problem or, or I'm not sleeping well because I've got an anxiety problem, whatever. Look, just name it. And, and there should be people in your lives who know you that well and who will walk with you. I mean, that's, that's the, what the scriptures say, right? This is part of confessing. It's naming our stuff. Uh, and then that naming in itself begins a process of healing. Doesn't, it's not a promise that cancer goes into remission. It's a promise that, that that bitterness or that shame or that sense of hiding or that sense of not being fully known and loved, that's dealt with. And that's a healing in itself right there. So I really, need, this is so vital. Can we get this? You know, uh, I've been obsessed with trees during COVID because in social isolation, they became my best friends, right? Like I walked through the forest and, you know, then reading the hidden life of trees and searching for the mother tree and all that stuff. And what I, one of the things I learned is if this tree right here is attacked by a fungus, immediately that tree creates like a warning pheromone. And a pheromone is like a scent, right? And then when it's windy, that scent goes to all the other trees. And then what those trees do is they activate their own defense mechanism so that they won't get the same fungus. But then also through this mycelium network, this underground root system, they will share their own defense mechanism with the sick tree to fortify the tree that's sick. The tree confesses to the whole forest, I'm sick. The whole forest, like they, they marshal their resources and say, we will walk with you. Is that not amazing to you? So we could learn something from the trees. Tolkien was onto something, man, what the Ents were you know, talking and walking around. Like it's more true than we realize. But that's a great, that's a great illustration. Who, who among us kind of has the courage in the group of intimate friends that we have to really say what's going on? This is huge. 
then third, and finally, how is all this related to healing? And again, if I go to James 5, 15 and 16, pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, someone who's sick. The prayer of it in faith will restore the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you might be healed. Uh, so the anointing in oil uh, in verse 15 is related to the healing of verse 16, both of which have as precondition confess your sins to one another. Well, now we've learned from the book of Job that this isn't a formula for absolute healing, but it's a, it's a, it's a way of moving toward healing, right? So there is perfect healing, right? We're, we're told in the scripture, this body's decaying, and then there's a resurrection, a glorified body. Read about 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 15. It's all in the Bible. You know, uh, it's no shame in having gray hair. No shame in uh, your, your mile going from uh, 6 minutes and 30 seconds when you were 25 to, you know, 13 minutes and 30 seconds when you're 65. No shame. It's just the way it is, right? And if you're faster than me, I don't want to talk to you after the service. <laughs> but there's no shame. So, so, uh, yeah, that happens. That, that happens. That's okay. It's not perfect healing. I'm not, it's not, this is not a promise. Oh, confess your sins and you'll run 630 again. No. Confess your sins and all the cancer just magically disappears. No. But what does happen when you confess your sins? Well, um, this, if my sin is bitterness, I'm not bitter anymore. (laughs) If my sin is fear, I'm working on overcoming my fear. If my sin is this, uh, predisposition towards some unhealthy self-medicating way, then I've said I'm, I'm now on a journey toward healing. And all of those are moving the needle in the right direction. That's James 5. So the coming clean that only needs to happen, not only does it need to happen, but when it happens, it moves me toward wholeness. Uh, remember 12 steps? Step four, fearless moral inventory. Like, be honest with your life. Are you dealing with bitterness, shame, fear, greed, lust? Are you self-medicating in unhealthy ways? Are you a workaholic? Like, do like be self-aware and name it. And then name it with people who will walk with you on the journey. And then step eight is a list of all the people you've harmed with a willingness to make amends to them. So it may mean going back and building relationships. When, that, when those two things happen, my moral inventory and, and my making amends, I'm known. And if we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, we realize, look, as soon as sin entered into the equation, a byproduct of sin is this. I don't run to people and share who I am. I've got the fig leaves going, right? I'm covering who I am. And I'm running and hiding, actually, and I'm blaming. Covering, hiding, blaming. Watch this. Who in the room wants intimacy? Don't raise your hand, but you all would. We all want, but none of us want to live alone and be in, have no friends. I don't mean live alone, you understand. I mean, we don't, want, we don't want to be friendless. We don't want to be lonely. None of us want to be lonely. But who of us are willing to be fully known. Ah, no, that's a different story. Like, I don't want to be lonely, but I also don't want to be known. I want intimacy on my terms. 
like when it's convenient. And that doesn't, that doesn't work in God's economy. Real relationships mean I'm known, right? And then there are people walking with me through the peaks and the valleys. And when I blow it, I'm working on the relationship. So when, when I'm in those kind of relationships, the blaming and shaming and pride and denial and hiding that are so characteristic of our culture, that stuff begins to disappear, right? So we want to learn here how to basically come clean. This is why Brene Brown says, courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. Courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. And that requires of a church a couple of things. First of all, my hope and prayer for Bethany is that this is and remains and increasingly becomes a place of grace where there is no thing that you could say to those who are on your team that would create, like, exclusion. Because confession is where we gain the courage to walk the walk, right? So it would be a safe place where we can be known and know fully. And, of course, for that to happen, uh, it's, it's important that there are structures in place so that everyone who is pursuing that kind of intimacy can find that kind of intimacy. This is, this is why there are small groups. This is why there's a, you know, a story class. This is why there's a choir. You know, there, there are places. This is why there are service teams. Service teams don't just serve. They bond. They know each other. So, so you know, it's an opportunity in church life, not to just come on Sunday and hear this. This is kind of the motivational speech in the locker room. But the game is not played in the locker room. The game is played on the field. And on the field, confess, forgive, walk together. That's what makes a church a church. You know, we showed up 26 years ago, and within the first month, we were invited to somebody's house for supper. That was a small group. It was a small group that had been meeting for years. And, I, you know, I thought, oh, small, you know, we're going for dinner. We'll walk in the door at 6. We'll be out by 7.30. Ah, uh, no. You know, we eat. And then, I don't, I don't know what happened at the time, but we, we laughed, we got to know each other, people shared stories, and pretty soon the candles had burned all the way down, it's 10.30. And at the end of the night, we were saying, this is the kind of small group I want to be in. I've never been in one like this. And the, the, I'll never forget, a lady said, oh, you can be in a group like this. Just keep showing up for 20 years. Are you with me? Yeah, in a hypermobile, highly individualistic society, who does that? Not many. So, you know, if you're walking alone, don't. Take a step today to be in a community that will love you and walk with you. And if you're carrying something, come clean today. And if there's a burden, utilize our prayer team after the service. This is how we be church, right? Not just by hearing me and singing, but by really weaving our lives together in a community of confession and restoration and grace. Father, uh, may your light shine through Bethany in distinction to a world filled with pride and denial and lack of any kind of sense of mutuality. People are walking alone. People are lonely. May, may this be a place of healing because we're known and known.
Christ's name we pray.